Okay, so we'll do just as I told you What yesterday. Now you will get the last 10 minutes okay. of rapture. You remember if you were here, yeah. yes. Okay, just press the button. Okay. Or that's it. Yeah. Up to this point, yeah. That's, up to this point the movie was normal reality.
What more do you need? Get out of here. What are you doing here? I want to know what happens next. Are you scared? I don't know. I never had any faith. But you did. Yep. So. So. Well, if the world is coming to an end, this isn't the place to be. Let's go.
We're in heaven. Why are we in heaven? We're not in heaven. Heaven's over there. I can't see it. It's there. If you love God, it's there. Foster, do you love God for giving you the gift of life? Yes. No! Mommy, Gabriel's coming. You have to make up your mind. There's nothing more to say. You have to love God. I love you, Mary. That isn't enough. Maybe it's all I have. If life is a gift, if it really is a gift, and there really is a heaven, there really is a heaven, then why should I thank him for the gift of so much suffering, Mary? So much pain on the earth that he created. Let me ask him why. Tell God you love him. I can't. If you don't tell God that you love him, you can't go to heaven. Tell God that you love him. Love you. No. Again, let's avoid the misunderstanding. I said already yesterday, I'm not claiming this is a great movie or whatever. I just admire the total madness of it. You know, this total confusion. First you think up precisely up to the point where the clip began. You think that it's just kind of a psychological drama, whatever, about a deceived believer, and then you saw how it gets crazy. And what interests me is, again, this gesture, which is, I think, important. Why? She, Sharon, the heroine, persists in renouncing a God who is real but a narcissist, giving us life for the sole purpose of demanding unconditional love in return, no matter how much damage his demands have inflicted on human lives. Now, if you think that this is just a case of extreme madness, nothing to do with authentic theology, such indifferent, narcissistic God is part of Christian tradition. For example, for Nicolas Malbranche, I mentioned him already, I think, the follower of Descartes, in the same way that the saintly person uses the suffering of others to bring about his own narcissistic satisfaction in helping those in distress, God also ultimately loves only himself and merely uses men to promulgate his own glory. 
Malbranche draws here a consequence worthy of Lacan's famous reversal of Dostoevsky. If God doesn't exist, then nothing is permitted. It is not true that if Christ had not come to earth to redeem humanity, everyone would have been lost. Quite the contrary. Nobody would have been lost. Every, we all had to fall so that Christ could come and deliver some of us. You know, you have here, God is a pervert here in this theology. You have here uh, the notion of God, which fits, I, often I mentioned it, a wonderful short story of Patricia Highsmith. According to her biography, this is even her first published story. I mentioned it a couple of times in my books. Uh, uh, it's about... Uh, 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 a young girl who takes care of children in a family, but uh, uh, she thinks that parents don't appreciate her work enough. So she burns the house just to be able to save the children so that, you know, that's what God is doing with us. That's the theory. So Sharon's resistance to God, her refusal to declare her love for God is... I think, an authentic ethical act. It would be totally wrong to say that she re rejects the false God and that, in an authentically Christian version of the film, the true Christ should appear at the end, proclaim her a true believer, and so on and so on. The true temptation to be resisted is to declare our love for a God who doesn't deserve it, even if he is real. For a vulgar materialist, all this cannot but appear, again, a pseudotopic, an empty mental experiment. However, for a true materialist, it is only in this way that what we really renounce, it's only in this way, sorry, that we really renounce God. By way of renouncing him, not only in the far as he doesn't really exist, but even if he is real, only in this way we destroy the fiction of God from within. Namely, it is easy for this fiction to prolong its hold over us in the form of a disavowal, like, I know there is no God, but he is nonetheless a noble, uplifting illusion. No, we should say the opposite. Even if there is God, he is evil. I mean, I'm not original here. Kafka says this. Many Gnostics got this point. So, again, what I'm trying to convince you, and this is my very weird, I know, plea, for Christianity and Judaism also, is that uh, I claim that this line of thought was from the very beginning part of the, my God, I don't like now to sound like Dan Brown, but uh, secret teaching of Christianity, which was there. And it was there already in Judaism. You know, I quoted it two times already, I think, in my books, uh, a wonderful story from Babylonian Talmud. It has two versions. Okay, if you want the details, they're in my book. The last one, Absolute Recoil. Uh, it's the weirdest, probably, story of the uh, Old Testament about two rabbis fighting over a theological question and unable to resolve it. One of them says, I quote from, let heaven himself testify that the law is according to my judgment. Then a voice, uh, yesterday or before when I told you the story, I changed it a little bit. It's not that God appears, but a voice from heaven says, 
uh, 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 says yes, I agree, blah, blah, and then uh, agree with one, and then the other rabbi who was losing the argument said, you, God, did long ago write down in the law which you gave on Sinai, you shall follow the multitude. In other words, we people, collective decide you have nothing to say. And then God says, my children have vanquished me, my children have vanquished me and runs away. And you have even, again, a different version and so on and so on. But uh, uh, what I want to uh, emphasize here is that the outstanding feature of this story is that in precise Lacanian sense, God is no longer the big other because uh, it is decentered with regard to the big other, the order of symbolic registration. The big other is the domain of logical, not logical in the strict rational sense, but of symbolic reasoning, rabbis debating, and so on and so on. And even God, after giving us the law, he now is not allowed any longer to mess with it. God himself is decentered with regard to with uh, regard uh, to the big other what are again the theological consequences of this postmodern philosophers from nietzsche onwards as a rule prefer catholicism to protestantism the idea is that catholicism is a culture of external playful rituals in contrast to the inner sense of guilt and the pressure of authenticity that characterize Protestantism. I mean, even in some art circles, they like to say that, okay, traditional modernity is Protestant, but postmodernity is Catholic again. Catholic in the sense of don't take it too seriously, it's more playful, and so on and so on. We are allowed to just follow the ritual, to ignore the authenticity of our inner belief, and so on and so on. However, I think that this playfulness should not deceive us. Catholicism is resorting to such tricks to save the divine big other in his goodness, while the capriciously irrational predestination in Protestantism confronts us with a God who is ultimately not good and all-powerful, but stained by an indelible suspicion of being stupid, arbitrary, or even outright evil. That is to say, I think that the dark implicit lesson of Protestantism is, if you want God, you have to renounce divine goodness. Along these lines, the most radical reading, I quote it in my book, of the book of Job was proposed in 1930s by a Norwegian theologist, Peter Wessel Zapfe, who accentuated Job's boundless perplexity when God himself finally appears to him. Expecting a sacred and pure God whose intellect is infinitely superior to ours, Job, I quote, finds himself confronted with the world ruler of grotesque primitiveness, a cosmic cave dweller, a braggart and blusterer, almost agreeable in his total ignorance of spiritual culture. What is new for Job is not God's greatness in quantifiable terms. That he knew fully in advance. What is new is God's qualitative baseness. End of quote. 
And I claim, again, another reference to a song that I mentioned already in my books, one can discern the traces of this full acceptance of God's unconditional, capricious authority in the last song Johnny Cash recorded just before his death, The Man Comes Around. It's a very weird song about Armageddon, the end of days when God will appear and perform the last judgment. And this event is presented in this song as pure arbitrary terror. God almost appears as evil personified, as a kind of political informer, a man who comes around and provokes consternation by ta taking names, by deciding you are saved, you are lost, and so on in totally arbitrary way. If anything, Cash's description evokes the well-known scene of people lined up for a brutal interrogation and then an informer pointing out those selected for torture. There is no mercy, no pardon, no jubilation. We are all fixed in our roles. As Johnny Cash says, the just remain just, the filthy remain filthy. Even worse, in this divine proclamation, we are not simply judged in a just way. We are informed from outside as if learning about an arbitrary decision that we were righteous or sinners, that we are saved or condemned. This decision has nothing to do with our inner qualities. And again, this dark excess of the ruthless divine sadism, excess over the image of a severe but nonetheless just God, is, I claim, a necessary negative, an underside of Christian love. Love which suspends the law is necessary, accompanied by an arbitrary cruelty which also suspends the law. What do we mean by this? Let me, I think I already again mentioned it, but nonetheless again, let me quote you here a brief passage from Primo Levis. If this is a man, where he, Primo Levi, his Auschwitz memoirs, it, it, where he describes the dreadful procedure of the term used in the camp was selectia, Polish, selection, the survival examination in the camp. Quote, each one of us, as he comes naked out of the daily room into the cold October air, has to run the few steps between the two doors, given, give the card to the SS man and enter the dormitory, the dormitory door. The SS man, the doctor, in the fraction of a second between two successive crossings, with a glance at one's back and front, judges everyone's fate and in turn gives the card to the man on his right or his left, and this is the life or death for each of us. In three or four minutes, a hut of 200 men is done, as is the whole camp of 12,000 men in the course of an afternoon. End of quote. So, right means survival, left means gas chamber. Is there not something properly comic in this ridiculous spectacle? Because as Primo Levi reports how, you know, before running just for a second to be observed in front of the SS doctor, uh, 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 prisoners tried, of course, to create an impression that they are still vital enough healthy enough. So they shared all the tricks, how if you pinch your 
lips a little bit or whatever, you will appear more alive. It's a comedy, again, but a crazy comedy. And what I want to draw uh, your attention to is how, uh, again, the parallel between this scene, maybe one of the most terrifying scenes, uh, sorry, not scene like scene, but scene like picture, scene, uh, from Primo Levi, I strictly think that there is a parallel between this and The Last Judgment. I think that the truly subversive reading of Last Judgment is not some kind of a pseudo-deridian deconstruction in the sense, yes, we should maintain the hope that at some point at the end, you know, there will be an honest judgment where the truly uh, good ones will be redeemed and so on and so on. No, the problem is not this judgment is a utopian point forever postponed. No, the problem is it happens, but as a horrible travesty of itself. Uh, the final judgment is, uh, as, sorry, as some commentators noted, the reasoning, God decides who to free and who to blame. Those who believe in Jesus will be saved and will escape punishment, that this judgment is inconsistent. If our salvation depends on our belief in Jesus, then Jesus doesn't have, in God, then he doesn't have to make any decision, but just to follow the insight. But I claim it's crucial that in this staging of last judgment, the idea, the formulation is God decides. It's a totally arbitrary procedure. That's, I think, again, the deepest insight of predestination. It's that it doesn't matter what you do. God, God decides from outside in a totally arbitrary way. Uh, this God from the song by John Cash is effectively a God of terror. Terror not just in the sense of the arbitrariness of predestination and the nightmarish quality of the last judgment, but even at the more visceral level, indicated by a passage from Matthew, Gospel, which is also, I noticed as a rule, ignored by the Christian tradition. Just listen. Here is how Matthew describes the redemptive death of Christ. Quote from Matthew 27. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. End of quote. We can easily see from these lines why in the opening credits of the 2004 remake of the famous undead horror movie Dawn of the Dead, Johnny Cash's song accompanies a documentary mixture of news reports and home videos in order to provide a quick exposition of a zombie outbreak gone global and catastrophic. The risen Jesus of Christianity is himself, I claim, the ultimate profane obscenity, the ultimate returning horror, not a ghost but reanimated flesh, crawled out from the grave, three days rotten, demanding that we slide our finger along into his uh, filthy wounds, demanding if 
translators were more honest with the original Greek that we chomp down on his flesh and guzzle his blood. The authentic Christian notion of resurrection, I think, should be totally cleansed of this obscene topic. What God is love means is, to quote John, no one has ever seen God, but if you love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us, end of quote. Uh, so what I'm saying, you see, is that all that topic that you add above this, God is Holy Spirit, is for me where the Bible meets horror movies, obscenity. I mean, I think we should do precisely this dirty imagining and imagine rising of the dead as a scene from a horror movie, you know, all those creepy deaths likely moving towards us and so on and so on. Next point. I want nonetheless to complicate things a little bit. Namely, uh, this uh, motive of man's total subordination to God, total subordination in the sense that uh, it's predestination, we, cannot, we, cannot, we are not, do not have any freedom of choice, everything is decided in advance, far from necessarily sustaining a vision of slavery and subordination, can also sustain a project of universal emancipation. It's interesting how precisely those religions or those schools, orientations within a religion, which preached man's total subordination to God, usually had an agenda of egalitarian emancipation. So now comes my surprise, but I'm not the one who supports this guy in any way. Let me read you, I hope it will not be too boring, a long quote from, you know who is Said Qutb, the so-called uh, philosopher of Al-Qaeda, as the Western media call him. Now, in no way do I subscribe to what he is saying. Nonetheless, I would like to read you a longer passage from his milestones, where he in a nice theological way, nonetheless, de deploys the link between universal freedom and human servitude to God. Just listen to this rather long quote. Quote, a society in which sovereignty belongs exclusively to Allah and finds expression in its obedience to the divine law and every person is set free from servitude to others, only then does it taste true freedom. This alone is human civilization because the basis of human civilization is the complete and true freedom of every person and the full dignity of every individual in the community. On the other hand, in a society in which some people are lords who legislate and others are slaves who obey them, there is no freedom in the real sense nor dignity for the individual. It is necessary to understand the point that legislation is not limited only to legal matters, since some people do in fact assign this narrow meaning to the Sharia. The fact is that attitudes, the way of living, values, criteria, habits and traditions are all legislated and affect people. If a particular group of people forges all these chains to imprison others in them, it will not be a free society. In such a society, 
Some people have the position of authority, while others are subservient to them. This society will be backward. An Islamic society is unique insofar as in it authority belongs to Allah alone. And man, freeing himself from servitude to other human beings, serves only Allah, attaining real and complete freedom, the focus of human civilization. To this society, human dignity and honor are sacrosanct in the law prescribed by Allah. Man, as the vice-regent of Allah on earth, attains a position even higher than that of the angels. In a society based on the concept, belief, and way of life originating from Allah, man's dignity is held inviolable to the highest degree. No one is a slave to another, as they are in societies in which the concepts, beliefs, and way of life originate from human sources. In the former society, Islamic society, men's noblest characteristics, both spiritual and intellectual, find fullest expression, while in a society based on color, race, nationalism, or other similar bases, this degenerates into fetters for human thought and a means for suppressing nobler human attributes and qualities. All men are equal, regardless of their color, race, or nation. But when they are deprived of spirit and reason, they are also divested of their humanity. Man is able to change his beliefs, thinking, and attitude toward life, but he is incapable of changing his color and race, nor can he decide in what place or nation he is to be born. Thus, it is clear that a society is civilized only to the extent that human associations are based on a community of free moral choice. And the society is backward insofar as the basis of association is something other than free choice. My God, it's quite incredible what he says here. It's quite a radical egalitarianism. Okay, now of course comes my evil mind. Did you notice how when he lists all these uh, features into which we are born, which are not our free choice, color, race, nation, and so on, hey, 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 one is missing, sex, gender, no? If he were to be consequent, he should have added to this series sex, but of course he cannot. Uh, uh, namely, again, his problem is why does a free society not include the full equality of men and women? Precisely because to be a man or a woman, okay, maybe with all the sex operations today, but at least in majority of our societies, for most of us, uh, your gender is not a matter of your free choice. Uh, quick underlying premise is that, insofar as we humans act freely, in the sense of just spontaneously following our natural inclinations, we are not really free, but enslaved to our human, sorry, animal natures. And it's interesting how I owe this to John Milbank, who drew my attention to this passage in Aristotle, how we find this same line of reasoning already in Aristotle, who, referring to slavery as an example to illustrate a general ontological feature, this is from Aristotle's Metaphysics, 
Book 12, he wrote that left to themselves, slaves are free in the sense that they just do what they want, while free men follow their duty. It is this very freedom, just you follow your natural inclinations, which makes slaves slaves. A quote from Aristotle. All things are ordered together somehow, but not all are alike. Both fishes and fowls and plants. And the world is not such that one thing has nothing to do with another, but they are all connected. For all are ordered together to one end. But it is as in a house where the free men are least at liberty to act at random. All things or most things are already ordained for them, while slaves and animals do little for the common good, uh, good and for the most part live at random. For this is the sort of principle that constitutes the nature of each, end of quote. So in spite of all that is problematic in this passage, there is, I think, a grain of truth in it. That is to say, does this characterization of slaves not provide a good determination of today's, what we usually refer to as consumerist slavery, where I am allowed to act at random and do what I want, but precisely as such, I remain enslaved to the universe of commodity, to how I am stimulated from the uh, commodities. So again, the underlying idea here is that uh, Precisely when you are formally free in the sense of you do what you want, you are truly enslaved. And that only by subordinating yourself to some kind of higher authority for Kudb, God, for Aristotle, uh, uh, for Aristotle, your inner sense of duty, are you in a deeper sense uh, free. Of course, we can see how they diverge. Uh, Aristotle, Aristotle's advantage from our standpoint is that he refers just to the sense of ethical duty, which makes you free in a way which, of course, points forward towards Kant. But the advantage of Kut is that for him, freedom is also social and economic radical freedom. There is no slavery. Radical freedom and equality in, in uh, social matters. And what fascinated me so much is that recently I was reading to do some piece of criticism a text by uh, that uh, Road to Serfdom by Hayek, you know, that Hayek. And he says strangely exactly the same thing, only instead of God or inner duty, the absolute master that he imposes is market. And again, uh, it's a wonderful, very dialectical line of thought where he says, if we don't have an unconditional and arbitrary authority above us, which decides our fate and is basically out of our control, again, it's arbitrary, not just, without this unconditional external authority, we necessarily uh, regress to serfdom. His idea is this one, that it's precisely this idea, you play on the market, you no, never know because it doesn't depend on you how your, what will be the result of your interventions. You may be very rational, 
prudent, but nonetheless, because of some irrational market movements, you lose everything or whatever. His point is that precisely because of this, you remain free in a way. And he has another line of thought, which I also find very instructive, especially in view of what, we don't have time to go into it, of what Fred, Frederick Jameson is now developing and he's universally almost rejected for this, uh, uh, developing as his American utopia. I think I already mentioned it, uh, uh, if not the last time before when I was here. You know, Frederick Jameson now did an intervention, a text, now I have it, it's a full text called American, an American utopia. And he tries to reply to the question, like after all the bullshit that we had, all the failures, how can we even imagine an alternative communist society? And he does something which, as you may suspect, appeals to me because it's totally crazy. His first premise is that it should be a militarized society. Universal conscription. All society should be... You know how he writes there, how he came to this idea? He told me when he was young, he remembers in 52, one or two, the debate between Eisenhower and I forgot, Adlai Stevenson, I think, who was the Democratic, pre and Democratic candidate for President uh, Adlai Stevenson advocated what Obama tries to do today, universal health care. And Eisenhower's reply as a general was, if you want free state organized universal health care, join the army. And now, Fred's idea is, okay, fuck it, let's do it, you know. <laughs> then he was thinking further and said that the army is the only big remaining welfare institution in United States. You know, it finances, uh, healthcare is covered, it finances your education, it provides housing and so on and so on. So his idea is, why not universalize the model of the army. And he goes pretty far here. He's even ready to admit that this means a great loss of economic efficiency and also you lose at least the absolute freedom to choose your job. Of course, uh, the problem is, uh, 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 there are problems with his vision. I don't think it works. No, 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 not because I'm secretly a liberal or whatever. The problem is the following one for me. Uh, he's not honest enough because if you look closely at what he expects from the army, it's just a kind of a centralized state-run economic regulation. Why then call it army? Army is war, nonetheless. So it's an impossible dream. He wants an army which doesn't do war, but just like, he says then what, he, he confronts this problem. Why army? And his answer is that, okay, army has to have war, but we have enough past heroes, we celebrate there, we play all this mocking game, but we don't do war. Ah, it doesn't work. That's my first point. Problem. Uh, <coughs> Second point is that he totally avoids the question, which is maybe a naive liberal question, but nonetheless, okay, it's nice to 
obtain this image of some kind of a centralized army institution which locates jobs and so on. We are all secure. But uh, I'm sorry for these liberal-sounding words, but, but who will run the army? Who will choose the generals and so on? He totally avoids this question, but he has another good point, uh, which, is, uh, which brings me back to Hayek. His point, and here I like Fred, his point is that uh, the biggest problem in communism, even if we imagine it, and I think this is a deep truth, it, he does the same, uh, uh, the same thing as I tried to do apropos God, like let's imagine an evil God, no? So instead of claiming communism is impossible, Let's think honestly how would it have looked, even if it's impossible, if somehow we were able to imagine it. And here I like it. He is still a great guy. He totally rejects the stupidity that somehow envy competition is a bourgeois phenomenon, phenomenal market competitivity, and that in uh, communism, we would have a much more collaborative mood. I mean, I help you, your welfare is my happiness, and so on. He said, no, capitalism can manage this by making competitiveness, envy, socially productive in some way. But he says, the big problem which can even ruin communism will be envy. That this will be the mega problem. Why? And here I will make a link with Hayek. You remember how I mentioned this insight of Hayek that Capitalism works precisely because it is unjust. And an old motive, I maybe even repeated it here already. It's very clear to Hayek that the injustice of capitalism, far from making it inacceptable, it's what makes it function because it prevents envy from exploding. Let us say I am, let us say we live in capitalism, I and you, I don't know who, we are both capitalists, you succeed, I fail. But my failure is to me, from the standpoint of my narcissism, much easier to accept if I can tell myself, fuck it, that idiot was just lucky, we know market is unjust and so on. Can you imagine how traumatic would it have been to admit that you succeeded on the market because you are simply much better, more intelligent, and so on, because then I have no escape. So again, it's the very injustice of it which makes capitalism livable, in the sense that, we, oh, he was just uh, uh, lucky, the jerk, and so on, in the sense of controlling all this. This is why, I repeat my old line, but it's important, this is why my friend Dupuy, whom I mentioned a lot yesterday, also developed how... This is the weak point of John Rawls' theory of justice, no? It only works if envy is not a fundamental factor. You know, to simplify to the utmost, Rawls' theory of justice. You are allowed to be rich, I mean, to get rich, to earn more, only if, A, two conditions, and they are catastrophic, I think. A, if you're getting wealthier, also helps a little bit those who are lower than you. 
so that you can say it's not just me getting more wealthy, everyone, even the lowest on the social ladder profit. And second point, that you get wealthy not simply by inheriting it and so on, but by your own hard work. But I think this is the formula for disaster. Can you imagine how people would envy each other? the poor, the rich, because you, again, you would not have an excuse, you see, this is the injustice of capitalism and so on. It would explode in violence. And Dupuy told me that when he proposed to Rawls this line of counter-argumentation, and they knew each other, because Dupuy was even uh, uh, correcting, uh, editing the French translation of theory of justice, that Rawls was pretty shattered and basically just refused it. No. I cannot even imagine this, I don't accept it, and so on. He admitted, Rawls, that with envy, it's over. With envy, his vision of, uh, of, uh, of justice uh, doesn't, no longer works. I think. So again, Fred Jameson has this wonderful, crazy vision of, you know, like my evil God. Yes, communism, but it will be hell because people will just envy each other. And then comes the total madness, where I think, again, things doesn't work with uh, Fred Jameson. He, he, another thing that I like with him is, you know, usually people imagine communism as big unification. You no longer have alienation between public, private life, between, I don't know, work and culture and so on. He says, no, only in communism the two will be clearly, absolutely separated. You will have your domain of work where, as a good soldier, state will tell you you do this, of course, for only two, three days a week, couple of hours, and then you are free for culture and pleasures. But again, the problem being, pleasures and culture, envy explodes there. So, what to do in an ultimate move of madness Jameson, and he's not, it's not clear, at least to me, I will see him next week uh, and I will ask him. He proposes a kind of a obligatory state-financed psychoanalytic institute, <laughs> where, which, whose main function will be to cure you of envy, you know. To, to, you know, like, I can imagine how naively he thinks that, you know, you go there, I envy my brother he got to screw that beautiful lady. And they explained to you, no, as Lacan said, your desire is the desire of the other. Don't you see the <laughs> desire? Uh, I, I, I think, I think, again, I think that it radically uh, doesn't work. And of course, as I made it from this, the point is how far should we follow this? logic, Aristotle, Kutp, and so on. Is it, to what extent does egalitarian society imply a radical, some radical, unquestionable authority? Like, again, thinkers as different. Can you imagine more different thinkers like Kutp, Aristotle, and, uh, and Hayek? But again, they all have this point. To be equal and free, you need an absolute external authority. Without this, hierarchy and authority emerges uh, among people. Okay, let me nonetheless return to, uh, return to 
Christianity is this the last word of Christianity? I think no. Of course, you pass through. What I want to say is just this. Uh, we have Judaism with the law, divine law which is supposed to be just and so on. Then Christianity suspends the law through the work of love. You know, all the Paulinian, I mean, St. Paul stuff. Love, love suspending the law. But what Protestants saw very well is that the suspension of the law should not be just in this beautiful Christian, traditionally Christian, external way. You know, no, love, uh, law is not the ultimate authority. There is this beautiful excess of love, pardon, mercy, and so on. That no, law has to be superseded also from within. That when you move to love as the external supplement to the law, the price you pay is the law itself becomes this law of predestination, totally arbitrary, uh, crazy law, and so on and so on. It's a serious insight. But let me go on. So nonetheless, what does Christianity do with this God? Eh, again, I will answer you with a joke. I will resume and further develop a line of thought in, I don't know which one, I think it is less than nothing, my book, the starting point of Christianity, for me, should be, as Lacan says in Encore, that God doesn't exist but ex hyphen exists. It means exists outside itself, exists through our belief in it. I remember here a ridiculous scene, I like commercial movies, from The Clash of Titans, where Zeus, played by Liam Neeson, of course, uh, complains that if men stop praying to gods and stop celebrating gods in their rituals, gods will cease to exist. And I always love this position. It's not simply a fiction. Intersubjective functions like this, that you are aware that, as it were, you exist only as another person's dream. That if others don't believe in you, you don't exist in a way. And here, I want to evoke, again, he was a genius, a wonderful passage from Kierkegaard, from his concept of anxiety, where Kierkegaard described in a mock mockingly how Simon Tornasensis, he was a 13th century scholastic theologist from Paris, uh, quote Kierkegaard, this guy, Simon, quote, thought that God must be obliged to him, to Simon, to this theologist, for having furnished a proof of the Trinity. This story has numerous analogies, and in our time, speculation has assumed such authority that it has practically tried to make God feel uncertain of himself, like a monarch who is anxiously waiting to learn whether the general assembly will make him an absolute or a limited monarch, end of quote. I like this vision that in the same way that, you know, God is waiting to hear, do I really exist, and so on, you know, as if believers decide about him. Now, uh, as Lacan put it long ago, God is dead but doesn't know that he is dead. That's why he lives. In this case, uh, we should add that 
in Christianity only God learns that he is dead. However, already the logical God of philosophers is a dead God, although in a different way. So I claim that Tornasensis was wrong, or he should be read in a more ambiguous way. If a philosopher proves the existence of God, is the God who comes to exist in this way not already a dead God? So I claim in a more refined version, what God really dreads is the very success of the proof of his existence. Namely, uh, the situation here is the same as an old joke that I repeat all the time, as the well-known anecdote from uh, about uh, Hearst, Hearst, Citizen Kane, uh, editor. God fears that the proof of his existence will fail. So horrible, I don't exist. But he fears even more that the proof will not fail. Kierkegaard, of course, talks about all this in a mocking way. But nonetheless, uh, uh, I claim that uh, if we move from the logical level to the level of belief and so on, we should nonetheless say that the divine deadlock resides in the fact that the God whose existence is proven is like a monarch whom the assembly makes an absolute one. The very form of confirming the monarch absolute power undermines it. And the political parallel is here crucial, since Kierkegaard himself resorts to the comparison between God and king. God, exposed to the philosopher's whimsy wit, is like a king exposed to the whimsy wit of the popular assembly. But what is the point here? It is simply that in both cases, we should reject liberal decadence and opt for absolute monarchy. No, I think that for Kierkegaard, the properly comical point of incarnation is that God King becomes a beggar, a low, ordinary uh, human being. So again, the point of Kierkegaard is that to put it like this, what happens in Christianity? It's precisely that people's assembly believers voted down God. No, you are no longer our king. You can join us, but you are one of us. Or to use, again, a story that I often use in my... So that I will not be too long. It's okay. That I often use in my work. Uh, oh, not often. Once I used it. I think it's a wonderful example of what of the traumatic impact of Christianity. I'm referring to one of the episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, uh, the third year, it was late 50s, this, before they were done in color, 25 minutes. It's a story called The Glass Eye, the opening episode of the third year, where Jessica Tandy, who is really an interesting actor, she was the one who played the original version of Samuel Beckett's Not I, the mouth, and at the same time she is the mother in Hitchcock's uh, birth. You know this, no? Okay. She plays a lone woman, <coughs> desperate, who falls for a handsome ventriloquist called Max Collodi, of course, a reference to Pinocchio. So, 
The point is that every evening uh, she goes to that uh, small theater where the ventriloquist plays with the blah, blah. And then I must confess, when I saw this episode, I was shocked. I didn't expect the final reversal. At the end, when people leave, it's a small hall, and in a shy way she approaches the ventriloquist who still sits there with his doll and approaches him and touches him, his arm, and then something, I hope you guess what happens. She discovers that it was the other way around. The big person collapses, and out of the small doll, a dwarf, a midget, crippled dwarf emerges. Like, what you thought it's a puppet was the real person, and the big real person was the puppet. I think something like this happens in Christianity, you know. You speak with Christ, you think, oh, Christ speaks on behalf of the Father. No, no, the Father is nobody, it's just a dead doll. There is only Christ and so on. So, in other words, precisely this situation, this displacement, I hate this word, uh, uh, points out nicely the creepiness of a human being. How? It's not that there is God. God is a name for what? For the divine is the creepy dimension in ourselves. What is creepiness? I already mentioned yesterday, I will talk today about my friend Adam Kotzko from Chicago, new book, still in manuscript, Creepiness, where he claims that creepy is today's name for the Freudian unheimliche, uncanny, for the uncanny core of a neighbor. Every neighbor is ultimately creepy. And this is what makes him a neighbor, not just a fellow man. You know, this is the key distinction for Lacan already for Freud. Uh, the fellow man is the one who is like us. You can identify with him and so on. Fellow man becomes a, becomes a neighbor precisely when he becomes creepy. You know, this usual experience. Like, let's say we were to be friends, and then after being friends for 10 years, you would, you were to catch me doing something absolutely disgusting that you would never have imagined me being able to do it. Like, you know, a blind man walks, I kind of uh, put my leg and for a strange way, maybe this is my creepiness, but I always have this idea when I see a blind man, you know, don't be afraid. I never do it. I just follow Plato who said that there are two types of people, those who do horrible things and those who dream about horrible things. No other way. But every time it's true that I see a blind guy, I have this idea of let's test him, fuck him. Will he fall down? I have this suspicion that they bluff, you know, all of them basically. And uh, okay, so let's go on. Uh, uh, what I want to say is that this is why, sorry to repeat my old story, this is why I hope you saw. I don't like it so much. Stanley Kubrick's classic version of, uh, how is the guy called, of Stephen King's uh, 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 Shining. Uh, Stephen King didn't like the movie. He thought Jack Nicholson was a catastrophe as the actor. And I think he was right. You know why? Because Stephen King made this point that uh, the father figure, who at the end, you know, dad is coming with a knife, terrorizes the family, 
that the whole point is that he is a nice, normal father, warm, and that gradually he becomes a monster, a neighbor. But the problem with Jack Nicholson is the moment he <laughs> enters the room. You know what I mean? There is no surprise. Like, you just wait. When will he start his, his evil smile or whatever? Okay, so that's neighbor. What makes a neighbor? Now let's do a little bit of theoretical work, and then I give you time to... Uh, my God, is this a terror for me? Why is this? It gets on my nerves all the time. This mic here, kind of uh, introducing false democracy so that you can come and it's for another meeting then. For them? For them. Yeah. Oh, I speak. I'm like a Stalinist leader. I speak for them. I represent them. Fuck them. What do they care? I, I know better than they what is good for them, you know? If they come, they will just start to fight and so on, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, let me go on. Uh, uh, uh. So what, first point, what makes a neighbor creepy are not his weird acts as such, but the impenetrability of the desire that sustains this act. This is a crucial point. For example, it's not a good example of creepiness, but nonetheless. Take Marquis de Sade. You know what's truly enigmatic about him? It's not what he writes about. What he writes about, I think, is, okay, it may be shocking, but it's boring and flat, you know, these endless visions. If you want to, I, you know, people, somebody say, you know, if you want to fall asleep and cannot, they usually say, uh, I don't know, count sheep or whatever. No, I say, read 120 days of Sodom. <laughs> After number 150, it gets totally boring. It's just totally mechanic uh, combination. You know, it's like around 300, I think. You take uh, like two virgins, one cow, one old man, and a dog, and they do it in this way. Then you take two cows, three men, and it's totally boring. The only enigma, and Lacan saw this nicely, is why did he write about it? You know what I mean? He's writing, not in some sublime, <laughs> the, reason, but the very act of his compulsion to write. Why did he feel this incredible pressure to go on writing? This doesn't enter the perverse economy. That's his ethical aspect, his true enigma, which is why, if you know the history, when he was in that uh, Charenton or where, the madhouse in the last years of his life, what really hit him there was not that he wasn't able to have sex or, or of orgies, more or less he was able, but that towards the end they took paper and pen from him. You know, this is the enigma. This is the creepy moment. I mean, okay, you're a pervert, you torture people, you rape them, it's disgusting, but it's not creepy. It's not enigmatic. The enigmatic is this. So the question is, what does a creepy neighbor want? What does he get out of it? You know, we suspect that another person is creepy precisely when a guy is doing something, but all of a sudden you discover that it is not for the obvious reason that he is doing that. Here is a quote from Kotsko, longer but very simple one. In the case of a sleazy guy who insists on propositioning every woman he meets, the element of enigma may seem to be missing. Okay, he's asking every woman 
can I fuck you, blah, blah. So, okay, he wants sex. And yet it seems strange that simply wanting sex would be creepy. Because a man who politely asks a woman on a date and then accepts the answer is, all things being equal, definitely not creepy. It may be tasteless, it may be intrusive, but it's not creepy. What makes the sleazy guy creepy is not that he is simply asking too many women out, but that his constant failure seems to indicate that he doesn't care that his methods are ineffective, that he always fails. It is as though he's directly getting off on the very act of approaching women with no regard for the ostensible goal of sleeping with them. When we recognize this, we can't help but ask, but why is he doing it? What is he getting out of it? You see, that's the enigma. And again, allow me to repeat at least here already for the fourth, fifth time, a story by, told me by your own British Lacanian Darian leader, where a nice symptom happened to one of his patients, he told me so, which I think exactly can be read as a defense against his own, the patient's own creepiness. I'm sorry if you know the story. It's, he told me that one patient told him of a slip of tongue that happened to him. He tried to seduce a lady, so they went to a hotel. First down, he took her to a restaurant. And of course, the idea was after a nice meal, uh, why don't we jump up to the room? But what happened is that when they entered the restaurant, he approached a waiter and instead of saying a table for two, he said a bed for two, please. Now, the point of uh, Darian Leader was that precisely this is not a vulgar Freudian sleep in the sense of, oh, fuck it, we know this is just uh, overture, I really care about that. But it's exactly the opposite. He, the guy, was secretly afraid that he will enjoy the meal too much, you see, and that he will forget about his true duty to do it after. So it's as if reminding, my, no, I'm not here just to eat like a pig, I should spare the energy, it's that. In, in other words, that would have been, a, you know, for example, if you are a lady, and if I may make a sexist remark, there are quite many nice ladies here. Don't accuse me of being creepy. Now, <laughs> if you were, wouldn't you feel it creepy if a guy takes you to a restaurant? And even if you don't have the intention to make, allow him to make love to you later. But, okay, you eat with him and the whole setting is, okay, even if I will say no, I expect him to make passes or whatever. But again, I'm just repeating this situation. If all of a sudden you would have noticed the excessive pleasure of, oh, why don't we order X in that way and that, you would have felt like, where am I here? You know, this is creepiness. Here again enters the Lacanian distinction between, of course, between object of desire and object cause of desire. Uh, Object of desire is what I desire, let's say. Sorry, male chauvinist perspective can be others, of course. Sleep with that woman. Object cause of desire is what makes me desire to do that. And that's for Freud the original perversity of desire. Is that uh, there is always some pervert excess which makes me desire. And I claim Perversion gets open precisely when you directly target what 
when you elevate object cause of desire into desire itself. Let's say I want to uh, sleep with a lady and what really triggered my desire is stupid example, I don't think it really functions today, but let us say the way her hair is curled and so on. But you know, all would become creepy if, okay, she says, yes, let's go to bed, and then she lays there ex uh, expecting me, okay, now, so, what kind of, do it, and I just go on caressing her hair and so on, and, ah, you also want to fuck, sorry, but I, you know, like, uh, again, when, what should be the object cause of desire becomes the thing itself. That's what makes it creepy. Uh, next point. Uh, uh, I'm not just blaming this perverse uh, situation, constellation. It can also be given a hysterical turn, which is even revolutionary, I would say. Namely, uh, of course, we have this effect of creepiness in the sense of, my God, it's for, you know, when you don't know and then you discover that the guy is doing it for some strange, eccentric, idiosyncratic reason. But how does it work in a non-creepy way? It can work in this way. Somebody is doing something, and when the effect of you is not creepiness, but simply enigma, in the sense of, in what sense? Okay, Kotsko mentioned uh, Girls, the TV series with that actress, author, who now published, I think, a book, a bestseller, Lena Dunham, no? And she says about her nudity. And of course, the enigma of that nudity is that, I'm sorry again for this male chauvinist remark, as a naked woman, she is not beautiful, to put it mildly, no? So, okay, quote, initially, her nudity was aggressively perverse, but as Lena Dunham's character moves beyond her perverse indulgences in later episodes, her nudity takes on a variety of new roles. For instance, one scene depicts her getting dressed in the morning after a shower, demonstrating her high level of comfort with her living boyfriend. Other nude scenes highlight her vulnerability or other emotional states, but none of them seem to have the primary goal of sexually arousing the viewer, nor of violating their normal expectations of sexual titillation. It is as though the show's aggressive use of nudity had somehow deactivated the customary use of female nudity, opening up a space for a more thorough exploration of what nudity could mean as part of a, the emotional landscape of a scene, end of quote. And I like very much this reading. Of course, uh, you can say that, but I think it's too simple to say, okay, the point is simply she offers herself naked because she knows very well that she is not too attractive. And, but nonetheless, I think the effect is genuinely enigmatic. This, you know, she is doing it, but not for this reason, nor for that reason. Why is she doing it? And so on and so on. And here we should oppose perversion and hysteria. Hysteria is this perplexity. Why is she, she doing it? But in 
a pervert, there is no perplexity. The very definition for Freud and Lacan of a pervert is he knows what he wants. This is why, incidentally, also, that's the ABC of psychoanalytic clinic. Perverts are the most difficult patients. Because, you know, hysterics are intrigued. That's why they are prone to transference and so on. While the pervert knows what he wants, is basically satisfied and feels no need in psychoanalysis. But I want to go into this, say, repeat another old but I claim important point. This is why, in contrast to the revolutionary 1960s, when it was fashionable to assert perversion against the compromise of hysteria, I think we should reassert hysteria as the original subversive attitude. What do I want to say by it? Usually people claimed, at least this was fashionable when I was young, and although 60s were supposed to be the big anti, sorry, pro-feminist epoch of awakened feminism, I think that at least in this both to relate to perversion, to, to give preference to perversion over hysteria, there was a clear uh, anti-feminist male bias, because the idea was this one. A pervert that a hysterical subject is just a provocateur. You provoke the master, but it's always ambiguous. You provoke the master, but really to... Uh, but beneath this provocation, there is always... It lays dormant there, a call for an authentic master and so on. You know that a hysterical subject just plays the game. Provoke the master, but at the same time call for a master. Well, as Freud even, unfortunately, put somewhere a pervert, pervert subject, a pervert, does effectively enact what hysterics are only dreaming about. So, again... The idea is hysterics are these protest guys who don't want to go to the end, just playing with the master, while perverts are revolutionaries. We do it. No. Uh, I think we should exactly turn it around. Uh, there is a constant in Lacan and uh, Freud already. Of, for example, Freud says something beautiful somewhere. He says that... Uh, in per nowhere is the unconscious more inaccessible, excluded, than in perversion. Which is a very surprising statement, because you would have said, isn't a pervert the one who precisely brings it all out? Every dirty... No, there it's totally closed. Why? Uh, now we have to make a, a next step, which is that uh, for Lacan, Perversion is a transgression, of course, of explicit rules. But what I repeatedly called an inherent transgression is the other obscene side which, while apparently transgressing, the law sustains it. You know, and every institution has this type of perverse rituals. You have this gray domain which is publicly ignored, the way you can violate the law and so on, but uh, as such, it sustains the law. And it's for me, as I repeat it for, my God, almost three decades, uh, that uh, 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 this is why the perverse transgression is crucial for the self-reproduction of a legal order. At all levels, 
from private economy, intimate economy, to half public. Okay, I will not repeat here these old boring examples that I overexploit that like pedophilia and Catholic Church. Of course, pedophilia is a perversion, but I claim it's an institutional perversion and as such part of the church's identity. You cannot say, let's erase pedophilia and we will get pure, clean church. No, you get something else. I don't know what, probably better than the existing church, but not it. And uh, so, uh, uh, or, uh, like, I've written intensely about it. You must know the examples. For example, army or school, all this dirty usually with homosexual innuendos, if we are in a male community, you know, all these secret rituals. Uh, this is what keeps institutions together. You always need, a master can be a master, but you need a pervert behind. Even in this most superficial sense. We don't torture, we have human rights, but like, let me put it, no human rights without Guantanamo, if I may put it this way. You know, where you do your waterboarding or whatever. All of, and did you notice the nice irony, how I'm horrified by them, but nonetheless, ISIS, did you look, see some of those publicly televised, recorded uh, uh, beheadings, liquidations? Did you notice that the prisoners to be killed are dressed in that yellow? You know why? Because it's Guantanamo, no? It's a nice detail, nonetheless, poetic almost detail. Okay, what I want to say is this, that uh, uh, we have, this is the basic insight of the hysteric provocation. And that's why a hysterical subject does not go to the end. The basic hysterical provocation is not, oh, I want to provoke the master, but not quite, at the end, I will submit. No, it's this insight that direct transgression is inherent, doesn't really overcome the system. That's the big hysterical insight, a very deep insight, which is enacted there. And that's the, okay, I will not go into other Lacanian details. You must know them, which can be beautifully uh, uh, deployed how for Lacan, that's why subject as such is hysterical. Because, as Lacan put it, subject is not an object. This simply means you are a subject insofar as you cannot properly locate yourself as an object. And this hystericizes you. You know all the classical examples like uh, Juliet to Romeo, why am I that name? Uh, again, I develop this point often just to recapitulate it for you. That's why this was first developed by my good friend, the Slovene, uh, part of my Slovene Lacanian gang, Mladen Dolar, of how hysteria is the necessary supplement to, uh, to what Altifer called ideological interpolation. The ideological interpolation hails you as a subject, provides your social identity. You are whatever you are, a clerk, mother, teacher, pupil, blah, blah. The hysterical question is, why am I what you are saying that I am? The, and this, a little bit of this, you find it also in this, can be pretty annoying, feminine question. I wonder, women should say, if the same goes for men, you know, this eternal torturing question of a woman, tell me why do you love me? I mean, 
I explode. Okay, that. Uh, although I am tempted, again, to repeat my joke, to say, okay, let's approach it in a perverse way, with a bureaucratic way. I will explain you why I love you. Let's make a list. Your eyes, nine points. Your hair, eight points. Your legs, seven. Your breasts, beautiful, ten. You see, my criterion for love is the average must be 8.5, so that's why I love you. <laughs> you. You pass it. But of course, that's by definition not love. And that's what also what hysterics know. You know that uh, the true love is triggered. The object cause of true love is always uh, a mark of imperfection. You know, to love really someone, you must find something which disturbs you. And then as a reaction, you say, in spite of this, I love her. Okay, I will not go into this. It was said enough. What, again, I want to say here is that, and this will be my, towards the end, then I nonetheless want to leave you some time for debate. Uh, 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 along these lines, back to Adam Kotzko, he characterizes hysteria as, a quote, a way of creeping out the social order itself. And just as in the case of the individual psyche, the social order is only susceptible of being creeped out due to the creepiness it carries within itself. Under normal circumstances, sorry, yeah, that was it, sorry. Under normal circumstances, the social order appears to be obsessive in structure, opting for certain acceptable desires while repressing or excluding others. Yet, from the hysteric perspective, the most salient fact about the social order is the way it is continually setting us up to fail so that it can even seem that the social order needs transgression and the illicit creepy enjoyment that it provides, the transgression. The social orders wink at not and nod of unofficial permission towards our creepy indulgences simultaneously makes social constraints more bearable and binds us more closely to the social order, insofar as it makes those creepy indulgences possible. In short, the hysteric is uniquely positioned to see that the pervert has a point. End of quote. My comment. Hysteria is as such always a historical formation. It reacts to the predominant mode of ideological identification. This historical approach also allows us to reject the standard argument according to which, in today's permissive era, we no longer get hysterical patients whose symptoms are caused by the oppressed sexuality. That's the standard line. Now that hysteria is the protest against uh, strict social prohibitions, oppressions, and so on, this belongs to Freudian, Victorian era, but today, it's per permissiveness, and that today, this is why today so-called borderline is replacing more and more hysteria. But from the Lacanian standpoint, I think, borderline is precisely today's name for hysteria. It's hysteria in our post-authoritarian age when the traditional master is more and more replaced by a neutral expert legitimized by his or her scientific knowledge. Let me, here is the last quote from Adam Kotzko. Thankfully, 
the social order no longer explicitly backs women so completely into a corner as in the age of the housewife. Yet women still face conflicting pressures, such as those that uh, carry, carry from Sex and the City, feverishly attempts to navigate in her quest to avoid being that girl in Sex and the City. Indeed, some of the contradictions that have been has even been intensified and complicated. As for example, women are expected to excel in professional life while still meeting traditional requirements of motherhood. If anything, women suffer from having too many mutually contradictory outlets for their desire. Hence, the contemporary manifestation of hysteria is not the psychosomatic intrusion of the body into the social order. Like, you know, the most elementary case, Freud of Dora. She was coughing. Why? She dreamt about fellatio, uh, uh, cannot even imagine, so it returned as a bodily system. No, in the face of the impossible demand to have it all, you are not only allowed to, but even pressed to be everything, to make a career, to be a beautiful woman, good mother, and so on. In the face of this impossible demand, the hysteric effectively goes on strike, refusing desire altogether. I think this is the best definition, maybe some of you know it better, that you can provide of borderline. Borderline is precisely desire on strike, as the contemporary, uh, uh, the contemporary uh, form of hysteria. So you know what? I did it over one hour and a half, and let's go a little bit more, but I feel so bad for doing what I do, that is to say, talking too much. So that why don't you, uh, I mean, now we have this stupid time for democracy or whatever, this <laughs> disgusting demagogic provocation here, no? Please, strike if you want. Uh, how do you prefer? Now, it's so stupid that I don't have a master. I am really, uh, somebody to tell, like, you are there. Can you shout loud enough or you come here? You decide, how do we do it? Shout from here. Uh, no, but the point is that he is there. Yeah. Shout. shout. Okay, so that shout. You raised the hand, no? Didn't you? Yeah, but that's what I mean. It's time for questioning, but shout so that people will hear you, you know. Uh, I have read many books uh, from Alastair McIntyre, you know. Sorry, which one? Alastair McIntyre. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, as I know that, he wrote many books or uh, works about uh, Marxism in his early Sorry, time. about? Marxism. 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 Uh, yeah, Marxism, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, uh, as I know that, he used a very important item, is practice. Uh, practice is also a very important uh, mm -hmm. item in Marxism, and he used uh, practice to build his uh, revolutionary Aristotelian. So revolutionary? Yeah, revolutionary Aristotelian. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, may I ask that how you think about the practice this item in Marxism, uh, and uh, do you think that the Armenian uh, has something to do with? Uh, the revolutionary in Marxism. Yeah, but, yeah, it's a nice question. Okay, I mean, again, the only problem is that to answer it properly, it means another talk. But what, I, so I will just give you some uh, maybe surprising hints. First, I think that it was demonstrated by 
Marxists who really knew about it, like uh, the young Lukács and some in the Frankfurt School and so on, that practice is not to be opposed to theory. So the first thing is to totally reject this entire topic of, oh, you're just in your ivory town of theory, we need practical engagement, and so on, and so on. The worst conformism is blind practice. And not to be blind in practice, you need theory. So uh, pra practice, the relevance of practice is for me that precisely uh, uh, you refuse to be, as it were, blackmailed by practice. You know, I often use this example of uh, charity today. That's for me practice as it works. You know, like, my God, what do you bullshit here about Lacan, Hegel, all these distinctions when children are starving in Somalia and so on and so on? Why is this ideology at its purest? Because the message between the lines is do something, don't think too much. You know, I mean, I had some quotes from people like, um, uh, 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 like Bill Gates and so on, who all make these points. For example, people are dying by millions, starving today. Why don't we just all get together, NGOs, people, charities, states, rich people, and do something? Let's not lose time with all those debates uh, about capitalism, communism, ideology, and so on. So for me, the first step towards authentic practice is theory. Theory without practice is... Uh, we know why. Because, and this is the, the core of Marxist critique of ideology. Ideology is not a crazy theory which is obfuscating we are doing in practice. Ideology at its most radical is part of your daily practice. You live, we, Altisher pointed this nicely, we live ideology in our daily life. You know, for me, uh, for example, racism is not, nobody, almost nobody, is racist today in this direct sense, whatever. No, no, racism is, is when you uh, true racism for me today is to say is not to say I don't know. Uh, Arabs are stupid terrorists, fanatics. Islam, um, uh, 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 Islam is bad terror. No, true, true racism is to say what Netanyahu and all of them are saying. You know, Islam is a great religion, but my God, the way and then you go into this. For example, racism is for me to say. I love them, but, this but, you know, their food smells bad, I don't like the sound of their music, and so on, and so on. Uh, uh, racism as ideology is, why do you find something in the other's way of life intolerable? This whole structure of envy, hatred, fascination, and so on, and so on. And so, for me, again, I don't fetishize practice. I'm even ready to go here a step further where probably no one will follow me. Uh, you know, again, I refer to my friend Mladen Dolar, who made oh, recently, in a debate we had in Slovenia, a wonderful observation. You know this, uh, that uh, this uh, thesis 11, you know, philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is also to change it, no? Okay, 
Let me ask yourself, I'm sorry if I already repeat this point here maybe a year ago. Let me ask you an extremely stupid, naive question. Who are these stupid philosophers who just interpreted the world? All of them, as far as I know, of course not in the sense of Marx's practice, but practically all of them wanted to change the world. Plato, we know it. Republic was a blueprint to change. And you know the story. He even went to Syracuse, to Sicily, to convince the local tyrant there to reconstruct his state in this sense. They practically all wanted to change the world. Spinoza has a project. Kant has a project. All. All philosophers had a project how to change the world. Now I will become really evil. Except one. Absolutely no. Hegel, which is the greatest inspiration for Marx, no? With Hegel, you definitely don't have this. He doesn't want to change the world. That's why, and that's the beauty, he was the most valuable source for actu actual revolutionary practice. Or to put it in another way, <coughs> to really change things, and that's what I will improvise if I will still survive and not have a heart attack at 6.30 today at LSE at that talk, that's why, uh, to really change things, you must go through that point of hopelessness where you lose your dreams and so on and so on, you know. So uh, let's not just, first, to really change the world, you have to see how, what spontaneously comes to you as the way to change the world, how to renounce that and so on, which is why, and that was the greatness of Lukács in history and class conscience to describe, which is why uh, uh, to... Uh, uh, and a theoretical, what Lukács calls self-consciousness, where you, in an act of self-reflection, become aware of what you are as a historical agent. This is the greatest practical act that you can imagine. And I will go even, yeah, sorry, immediately, yeah, even further here. That's why what I like in Adorno, is this insight, which I think is more true than ever apropos today's interactive art and so on. You know, like, when all this new digitalization began at the very beginning, in the 60s, Hans Magnus Enzensberger, German moderately leftist, cultural theorist, made this point about how in today's culture we are too much passive consumerists, and he saw, this is typical modernist leftist appropriation, he saw in interactive media a way nonetheless to assume an active role. We just don't stare at the screen, we so co-create it, and so on and so on. But already Adorno saw something very nicely, that if anything, in today's consumerist society, we are not passive consumers. We are all the time solicited, involved in pseudo-activity, and so on and so on. As Adorno put it nicely, the most difficult thing today is not to be active, but to be authentically passive. Maybe this is not the ultimate act. I'm not saying we just sit back and that's the big revolution, you know, but uh, like uh, to step back and open yourself in an authentically passive way to this situation. Which is why, to stop, to close with my last joke, uh, which I repeat, I think, in my Lenin book on Marx, like, that's the Marx that I love. You know, there are some letters, my God, I think I found it, I don't know where, from 1870, when it looked for a 
moment the Derbia European Revolution. And Marx wrote to Engels a letter, which is a letter of pure panic. He says, oh my God, why revolution already now? Let them wait, I haven't yet finished my capital, and so on. <laughs> That's authentic Marx, you know. Not that, oh, practical activity, whatever, and so on. Today we have to emphasize this because we do live in a hyperactive society, you know. We are passive at a more radical level. The form of how uh, we are unable to change anything is precisely because through our hyperactivity we reproduce the way things are. I know I didn't answer you, but fuck it, that's life. Sorry, there was a green guy there and then first row, and then you should shout, I'm half blind. Okay, you begin, the green guy. Okay, talking about philosophy and changing the world. Yeah? I'm very intrigued by your relationship, quote unquote, with, with, with Chomsky, uh, as to and you and Chomsky's work, I, I really respect and admire, but I feel that there is this standoff between you. I know he accuses you of posturing. And I don't know whether this is male soap opera or, or maybe when you, when you become a, a, a very big public intellectual, you can afford to sort of say those things. But it, it really saddens me that two people who are sort of very respected mm. leaders of the left-leaning intelligentsia mm. don't seem to have a relationship that, other than to sort of slag each other off. What? No, okay, I mean, uh, uh, very briefly I will clarify it. As you know, it all happened, maybe not in this room, but at Bergbeck, I think. Two years, was it a year, a little bit over ago, somebody asked me, did you hear about Chomsky's attack on you? Because the first football made by Chomsky gave some radio interview where he totally, totally tried to squash me. Like, then, because then the, the, the journalist asked him, okay, but... Okay, you don't agree with him theoretically, but what about some progressive uh, political collective acts? Would you be ready to collaborate with him there? And Chomsky said, no, absolutely no, nowhere, and so on and so on. So uh, I then, I didn't know anything about it. I just, in a crazy, shocked way, uh, reacted here. And I was pretty pissed off when then somebody, someone transcribed this, and then it started to circulate as I, my response to Chomsky. So then, of course, he did back. And then the only thing that I count, it's, if you notice, it is done in an extremely respectful way. It's my second reaction, which was a proper text, which is very respectful towards Chomsky. And I just go into where I don't... Uh, agree with him, and I emphasize what he's doing, his concrete analysis is great, and so on, and so on. But for me, uh, how should I put it, we can learn a lot from him, and so on, and so on. And he was so crazy when I said there is no critique of ideology in his work. And in one of his replies, he wrote, but that's all I'm doing. No, exactly not. You know why not? Because if you look, for example, at his critical analysis of American establishment, Aren't they naive? You know in what sense? It's simply he's denouncing lies, dispelling mystifications, and so on and so on. He displays all the hypocrisy and so on. But for me, the enigma of ideology is not... We all know this, that people lie all the time. But 
What do you have to believe sincerely in order to lie like that? How should I put it? That's the mystery of ideology. You know, for example, we know that Dick Cheney was cheating and so on. But, you know, cheating people are even more naive, I claim, and cynics and so on. So this, this aspect is for me, me he's a simple and we need this. He's just, and we are now even put together. I was glad to see now, somebody told me that there is now news that there is some action in support of Snowden, and we are even mentioned as a couple. Chomsky and me are doing it, and so on, and so on. Because uh, uh, this is so one difference, that he is, you know what, I didn't want to confirm who told, he said, I did never say what he, but I know, you know, I can say this here. Colin Robinson, the ex-Verso editor who now works for new books or whatever, some American publisher, he told me two years ago that he had a lunch with Chomsky and that Chomsky told him that basically today things are so cynical that we don't have to reject, refute any ideology, that today's ideology even doesn't pretend to take itself seriously. Like when United States say we fight for freedom, democracy, ignore it. It's ridiculous. We just have to make it known to people, to disclose secret, I mean, to inform people what is going on. This, I don't believe it. I think first people know a lot of it. Here I even had a slight, very friendly, not even really disagreement with Julian Assange, He's here to Chomskyan for me, because he's doing a great thing. But he still thinks, my God, people have to know this. My cynical view is that most of it, okay, not in this detailed form, but wait a minute, was any of us so stupid that you or he or she didn't know that probably we are controlled and so on? Doesn't a certain amount of power conferred this notion of transcendence on intellectuals like you and Chomsky. So you can't see each other. You've reached a certain... I mean, here I would be a little bit arrogant and I would say, I can see him. <laughs> I don't have any problem with him and a shared friend. Even tried already five years ago to say, why don't the two of you meet and do a book of conversations together? I said, yes, he said, absolutely no, no. No way, and so. But, you know, many people, Chomsky is not here an exception, you know, because, you know, with whom it was even worse, uh, Jürgen Habermas, a Polish friend of mine told me that from that Kritika Polityczna, Slavomir Sierakowski, the boss, that he made two, three years ago a big interview with Habermas, like four hours, what they call in-depth profile. <laughs> I don't like this because I don't have any depth to be, whatever, but the point is that in the middle, you know, they went over contemporary theories and at some point he said, okay, Zizek doing some kind of a leftist critique, what do you think about him? You know what Habermas answered? If you mention this name once more again, this interview is over. You know, so it happens. I don't care. But what I want to say is that I, I, I agree with you. Look, I'll put it in this way, in old-fashioned Maoist way. I still don't think that the antagonism between me and Chomsky is the antagonism between people and the enemy of the people. It's what Mao called the antagonism within the people, where I only... Okay, apart from this general disagreement, but still finding Chomsky's work very extremely useful, where I have another disagreement is 
you know, his type of what vaguely he himself refers to as anarchism. I don't have any illusions of October Revolution. It was a deadlock maybe from the very beginning. But you know, he, Chomsky, totally, here I'm not lying, I can give you quotes. He totally dismisses it as a narrow Bolshevik coup d'etat, nothing. Oh, it wasn't as simple as that. It was, he doesn't see the tragedy of October Revolution, which was that it was an authentic event and so on. So again, what I miss in him, I know we don't have, I don't have a detailed blueprint planned for what to do, but like, uh, do you have any idea what Chomsky wants in the positive sense? Okay, vaguely, we all want this. More transparency, democracy, blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay, everyone wants this, but... Sorry? He, he, he doesn't accept his own contradictions, so he can't see another people. But even, you see, here as a Hegelian, I totally agree with you. I would have added, even with this, I agree, but then you should heroically accept your contradiction. And this I cannot imagine Chomsky when, doing. When you're an old man, you've made a career out of thinking that way. It's like death. It's like you don't want to die. Yeah, but don't you believe in <laughs> a materialist mercy then? Maybe okay. if God has mercy on you, Say, oh my God, but I was in contradiction. <laughs> no, but again, I agree with you that it's a tragedy. I felt so bad because when I made that immediate reaction here, this was not because I didn't really mean, this was a stupid direct reaction. And obviously he also withdrew because after my second answer, which was a detailed, respectful answer, Chomsky gave, you can probably find it easily on the web, another interview where he's all the time provoked by the journalist. So what do you think about Zizek? And he doesn't mention it. He obviously he also decided to not to not to go into it, you know. And then apart from these two points, I must say I also do have some uh, political concrete I think he sometimes does make in concrete judgment political mistakes, and so on and so on. I mean, he's not as perfect empirically as he thinks, but we all, who is perfect, you know? No, no, but again, he's a great person and so on, whatever, my God. Uh, no, I think I uh, totally agree with you. It's uh, like, it's not productive, it's unnecessary. You know, and I'm not saying because the difference is small. I am here a good Stalinist. I say, this is the political dialectic. Sometimes a difference can be big, apparently explicit, but nonetheless, we can collaborate. There is a specific crucial point. And sometimes we may appear to be very close, but really it's the greatest gap. <laughs> I don't have any problems there. I must say openly, I hated my father. No, 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 and it wasn't that then. I hated him while he was alive, and then years later, you know, I started to cry, oh, why didn't I embrace him when he was dying? I remember my father was dying in a hospital. In the morning, they called me from the hospital. Your father is dead. I said, will you take care of the corpse? Thanks, yes, boom, and I continue writing my book. Never did I have this moment of, oh, Dad, why didn't I embrace you the last time I saw you? I'm a Christian here, you know, you are, we are here, Holy Spirit, you are my family. I, okay, so I talk too much. Uh, you and then there was somebody 
There, please. Okay. Uh, you go ahead. Uh, now, haha, <laughs> <laughs> with your problem. Who <laughs> will win? Okay. Yeah. I um, I like what you do uh, with the revolutionary core of Christianity, as you put it. But uh, I but have, yeah, then you. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I have uh, two issues with it, which um, I, you may have been asked before, but I haven't really mm. found an answer. Um, first of all, um, what is religion exactly doing? I mean, is it a nice story that illuminates very good the issue yeah. that you're bringing up, or is yeah. it something else? And then yeah. second of all. What would a society or a movement or something look like that sustains the assassination of the big other or whatever it is that you see in Christianity? It's not so much an assassination, it's like a suicide. Uh, but okay, whatever, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, no, of course, again, fuck you, in the good sense. I mean, like, to answer this, it's again two hours, no, at least. But my brief answer, I tried, more or less, to answer this at the other conference that um, Actuality of Theological Political, no? I agree, you asked the key question, which is, when we leftists refer to religion in a not just critical way, are we just playing this patronizing game like in stupid countries they are not, but I'm uh, imitating an attitude. Like Latin America, you still need to mobilize Christianity to, to, to make people revolutionary, but we enlightened Europeans, we don't. Is it just this, or is something that we can uh, genuinely accept in religion. And yes, I'm not just a manipulator. I am an atheist, but two things. First, I claim, uh, my reference here is Rowan Williams. I quoted him, who in his, uh, I don't know which book, uh, he, I think in his book on Dostoevsky, he says that he quotes some, he refers to some British uh, novelists, Catholic novelists, and say, what makes them religious? And he says, not any positive vision of divinity or whatever, but just this fundamental sense of displacement, discontent. Something is wrong with this world of ours. And I asked him this, and he told me, at least maybe out of politeness, you never know, that he agrees with me that this is how I read negative theology. Not that bullshit, you know, God is beyond of determination, but that before God comes a void, we, you know, like inconsistency and so on, and this is the fundamental theological experience. It comes before asserting, in, like to put it in this way, before having a God, you must open up the space for God. And you can have that space then also without God. <laughs> That's my definition of, you know, along these lines. The second thing is that uh, then we go specifically to Christianity, because, you know, Lacan says, as I always repeated, that the true formal of atheism is not God is uh, dead, but uh, God is unconscious. He means precisely, referring back to ideology, that uh, we, even if we are officially atheists, we are, we act as if we are a religion in our activity and so on and so on. And the point is how you overcome that, and here I see the legacy of Christianity. Maybe people are always telling me, but why don't you also see similar possibilities in other religions and so on and so on? I don't know. I wasn't yet convinced of it. I did. I have a great, uh, contrary to what some people think, I have a great appreciation of Buddhism and so on, but it doesn't totally uh, satisfy me. But sorry, I'm losing time so that at least one, two idiots people, I mean, you can 
Uh, please. I, I was interested in um, your lecture yesterday and the part that art played in it, uh -huh. looking through Pippin at yeah. Hegel's failure in relation to mm. class struggle. Um, I was the, the the idea that art has been demoted, and we look to science mm. for yeah. the absolute. Yeah. Um, and then I was interested in the way you, using Munch and Manet, try to show how art works with what can't be reconciled. Yes, yes, yes. Disjuncture. And I, my question is, do you think that Lacan's work on Sard in relation to sublimation, atheism, the death drive, for yeah, instance, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the way Sard the, 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 is an adequate way of thinking um, art and the absolute in the contemporary this situation. One, I cannot answer you, but because precisely you your get question... the point that I made? Sorry, I'm the, sorry, I'm sorry. Just let me finish. I mean, the interesting point about this, the, the Lacan on sublimation yeah. in relation to Sard, as you said, is not his erotics, not his social yeah. theory, it's the fact that he pushes the literary signifiers, yeah. Yeah. but not yeah. as a literary, literary theorist or mm. practitioner, but because he's working with his symptom. Yeah. So he changes, he doesn't change the object, he changes the aim, yeah, he yeah, gets yeah, into yeah. writing, and finally, yeah. what satisfies his drive is writing. Yeah, yeah. No longer what yeah. the original object of damaging yeah. young girls and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So there's a possible the potential to change not only the drive, but ethics. Yeah, of course, yeah. So I just wonder whether you think that um, Lacan's theory of sublimation indexed to the death drive is an adequate way of thinking art and the absolute in our contemporary situation. I... Uh, now, I will be totally honest. To answer you now directly, these are such fundamental points, is beyond my scope now. You know why? Because here uh, I found a certain, maybe I'm wrong, not so much tension as indecidability, non-clarity, however you call it, in Lacan, because I think that too many readings of Lacan, mine included, fell did fall into this trap of bad desire versus good drive, you know. But I think that ultimately Lacan doesn't privilege drive against desire, as if, you know, desire is still attached to the law, caught in some dialectic master, but truly elementary, the zero level is drive. I think that there is a short text in Ecri on, from Freud's Tribe, to the desire of the analyst, where nonetheless desire returns as the strange desire of the analyst, and it's desire not drive. So along these lines, I don't think some people are fascinated by this idea of saying, you know, in desire you still have lost object, fascination, and so on, endless, while in drive you find satisfaction, self-enclosing. I think that both desire and drive are like in parallax to two visions of some more radical deadlock, however you call it, and so on and so on. I don't think you can reduce one to the other. But I think the, it's very clear in the ethics yeah. That, um, Ethics seminar. Uh, seminar 7, that um, um, sublimation in Saad for, and for Lacan, radical forms of sublimation uh, linked to the death drive is a move from, say, pathology to the universal. That, so I agree. Is, Although, as you know... And also, it's the bearing. Just one more point. I'm I sorry. See whether you, 
whether it's the burying of um, in Atti, transgenerational contamination, it's coming to terms uh, with. But okay, I will not repeat the, the old stuff. I agree with you, but you know probably better than me that in ethics, precisely, there is not yet drive. It's a pure desire. And I think this is how we should read my old point. You remember on the very last page, even the last or one before the last paragraph of Semiral 11, where Lacan says, the desire of analyst is not a pure desire. Ce n'est pas désir pur. Now, as always with Lacan, you, can, you should ask the totally stupid question. Who is that idiot who ever claimed that desire of the analyst is a pure desire? The answer is Lacan himself four years earlier in Antigone. Which is why maybe I'm wrong. But now Antigone is almost my taboo, you know, the one which should be a cure. No, sorry, not Antigone, the uh, 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 ethics uh, seminar. Because uh, precisely, I think that what Lacan does in next seminar, transference, when he analyzes Claudel, Cufontaine, Signe there, it's precisely what, what eludes Antigone, what is still false in Antigone. I think that would have been much closer. It's precisely just a way of, you know, this... No, le no, the, the no of Signe. That, that's, Lacan moved forward, which is why, uh, uh, yes, I agree with you about sublimation and so on, and we would have... The absolute and the contemporary, that's Sorry? the question. The absolute, this question of whether art, we look to science for the absolute, or whether art in the contemporary situation can actually take up what can't be reconciled. The absolute important questions. Whether art, how art might... Uh, no, no, of course, no, no, my answer is this one. Of course, of course it can, but where? I mean, I would... My, how? Uh, where, uh, I mean, which, what? I mean, I'm more and more very critical of contemporary art. Like, all these fashionable artists like Damien Hirst and so on. My God, when people take power in my Stalinist universe, you know... <laughs> I say, hi, Damien, here you have a first-class ticket to Siberia and uh, one-way ticket. No, You know, I, 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 uh, I, uh, uh, I don't know. It's so, of course, it still does play this role, art. But one should have been very precise here, where, how. I think it's more in, glim yes, it's more in glimpses here and there. You cannot simply say this orientation is the proper one or whatever, you know. I just have great doubts about uh, conceptual art. I don't think it works to the end. It did play a certain role. Sorry, you have to, you are lady, the black lady. Um, <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to ask this, but you did mention Adorno earlier, and it falls right into this. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about the material production of art now and how much um, it's oriented towards education and um, sort of like political and social appeals, grants, that kind of thing, and like sort of... I don't know, moralistic, almost educational. Um, and I was thinking about this idea of like interactive art. It seems like art these days is entangled in social and effective labor and some form of kind of um, moral, basically ideological orientation in society. So I'm curious how, um, why you bring up Adorno in terms of possibly this idea of autonomy. Um, and whether at all that connects to what you said earlier about borderline. 
I see your point. Now here again, I can just give you some confused points. The first one is when you say how art is to the blind. You know, what I hate in modern art is best exemplified in these institutions of Biennale and so on. It's, they have two features. On the one hand, it's part of an intellectual fashion that they proclaim themselves critical, extremely uh, 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 revolutionary, and even, even analyzing the way they in advance admit, but we are ourselves always already manipulated by capitalist market and so on. And nothing changes. It still works. I mean, I, for me, today's art biennales, especially when they play this politically correct, anti-Eurocentric uh, 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 role and so on, it all appears so open, anti-racist and so on, but it's so perfectly integrated into into world market. So, so when you, the second problem I have with this, what you mentioned, this how it is included education into political process. This is the big problem I already had with Brecht. Look, he had this idea, learning place and so on. But how did Brecht's place when they were performed really work? A very vulgar question. I claim there was never a moment when you can really say they were performed to the workers' public, they mobilized the workers, and so on. Maybe there were some mass performances just before 33 in Germany of some of the learning place, but it's very interesting to read the reactions to them. Workers were mostly shocked and considered them way too authoritarian. It's interesting that Jazager, that, uh, the, how do you call it, the, yes, the guy, the man who says, yes, this first learning play with that authoritarian message, it was better received by the extreme right, who saw, you know, the true spirit of self-sacrifice. I'm not saying they were right. I'm just saying that when we talk about art playing an educational role and so on and so on, here I am for practice and empiricist. I would really like to see what does this really mean? How does it really function? It's very tragic if you look, for example, and I spoke with people who worked there at Brecht Berliner Ensemble Theater in Berlin after World War. Almost the majority of the public were West German from West Berlin tourists. It was earning money for, it absolutely never functioned in this way um, described by Brecht. The other problem with and that's what we with material practice, reality, and so on, is that, as I often already repeated, I think, and this is the big confusion, who is that American theorist who wrote the book, The Return of the Real, Hal Foster or who? You know that all this Brechtian topic of, as if, if you are too identified emotionally and so on, it's somehow bourgeois ideology, that you have to be aware of the production process, that the truly subversive thing is to remind you that it's just on stage or whatever. I think this precisely is not a return to the real, but an escape from the real. The real is precisely that abyss of, that imaginary abyss. You know, for example, I often make this joke. I'm sorry if it sounds stateless to you, but this is why in pornography, hardcore pornography, this is 
prohibited to get too immersed. And this is why I think it's an ultra-censored genre, hardcore pornography. Because uh, it all, in different ways, wants to remind you again and again, this is just a joke, don't take it seriously, and so on. This is my old story, I'm sorry you all know it. How, when I was young, 30 years ago, this distanciation was enacted through stupid, stupidity of the story. Stories, you know, the, the narrative which accompanies a hardcore uh, movie, you know, you don't just show people fucking there. You have to somehow introduce it in a narrative. They were so stupid that I'm absolutely convinced that it cannot be, it's not that simply people were so stupid who did it. There was some, my old joke, I'm sorry to bore you with it, you must have heard it. Like, I remember even now I'm traumatized. One when uh, the plumberer comes home and says to the housewife, I fixed that hole in the kitchen, and the housewife says, I have another hole to be fixed, can you also? You are embarrassed. And I'm saying this cannot be that people are simply so stupid. It had to derealize it, to remind you, and today it's even worse because, as you know, so I was told, I'm too old to watch <laughs> them, not that I have any problems, that today's hardcore form is so-called gonzo, I think, which is, they don't even allow, even the totally ridiculous fiction is too much. Gonzo means they have to remind you all the time, you know, like the actors look into the camera, even interact, hi, is it okay, this, should I move my leg? As if, as if, where does this terrible fear come from People shouldn't take us seriously, and so on. So, in other words, I think we should totally drop this, maybe even pseudo-Brechtian topic of somehow to, you know, Ray Chow, she's a good Chinese cultural theorist, I think she works with Fred Jensen at Duke. She wrote a wonderful text of how, what appeared 30, 40 years ago, the best of this Brecht, Verfremdung, extranation, good distance, and so on, that now it serves perfectly contemporary cynical. And she even gives some wonderful examples of how even the most popular, the most commercialized pop culture functions like that. Like she draws attention to what I've seen in the States. You have already meta-reflexive commercial publicity, which take the forum of the debate about how to make a publicity. Like, I saw a publicity clip where people simply debate. We should do publicity for this product. Should we do, we do it in this way, in that way, and so on, and so on. So I think, again, that we should drop this talk. It's the same motive that I always developed. You know, this is part of ideology. This is not realism. This strategy, which was used already by, that's why I hate him, uh, Mark, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. You know, he has this idea, like, when you think about sex, to get, to get redeemed, to get free of this false attraction of sex, just think materially what happens. You are embracing a woman, beautiful here. Think about what is two inches inside. All the glands, shit collecting, whatever, and so on. Or think about what will happen with her beautiful body, I don't know, 30 years on, you know. Or, or think about what happens when you have orgasm. Just some stupid ejaculation, some disgusting slimy juice, whatever. I, I think that this is the escape from the real.
The real here is not this stupid reality of the body. So it, in, in this sense, I think that this brutal, cynical realism, cut the crap, take things the way they are, uh, is the ultimate ideological naivety. No? I'm sorry, don't kill me. I have to run. It's quarter past. But see you again. Thanks very much. Because, unfortunately, I have to prepare...